This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my dear friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Andreas Obermeyer, who is at the University of Queensland, Queensland Center for Gynecological Cancer Research, Gynecological Oncology, at Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Reason for the podcast is uh, we're very honored to have uh, uh, published this uh, lead article uh, titled Development of a Surgical Competency Assessment Tool for Sentinel Lymph Node Dissection by Minimally Invasive Surgery for Endometrial Cancer. So first of all, Andreas, welcome and thank you so much for your time in doing this podcast. Thank you, Pedro, for for having us on the podcast, and um, and I really look forward uh, to uh, speaking with you um, on this paper. Great. So, Andreas, uh, you know, certainly lots of questions, important topic. Um, wanted to begin by asking you to describe as to the the main reason uh, as to why you thought this was important at this time uh, to develop this manuscript. Um, and also, what would you propose as potential implications of this work for future studies? Yeah, it's very interesting, Pedro, because it all started uh, with um, that I had an idea uh, about a trial concept to determine the value of uh, lymph node dissection in endometrial cancer. As you know, we, we all do surgical staging for endometrial cancer, and as you may also know, that there is very little evidence supporting that. So I came up with this uh, trial design that tests sentinel node biopsy in endometrial cancer. And I discussed it with Professor George Hanna, who is an academic surgeon at Imperial College in London in the UK. And he started asking questions about how we know that the intervention, so let's say that the sentinel node biopsy, is performed the same way everywhere in all our sites. And only then I realized that before we could do uh, this trial, which we call the end of three trial, we needed to make sure that the intervention is actually standardized across the sites. Mm -hmm. And so the outcome of this work is that we now have a framework and a standardized process of sentinel node biopsy. And now having that available, we could actually we could actually uh, commence enrollment uh, into this trial and the trial opened last month. Yeah, and, and actually uh, I think it opens opportunity for expansion of this to to multiple other procedures and potentially even the seaside. So I think that this is a, a great initiative. So I wanted to um, ask you also if you can talk to us about some of the methodology, and, and I know you go into detail in the manuscript, um, but just briefly if you can just describe to us uh, particularly what is the Delphi methodology? So the Delphi methodology is a research process that consists of multiple steps, whereas the outcome of each step informs the next step. So it's not one thing, it's a series of processes. In our case, we did interviews with 25 experienced surgeons who are experienced in sentinel node biopsy first. And I can tell you that I was utterly surprised how hugely varied the practices of sentinel node biopsies were. You think we all talk about the same when we talk about sentinel node biopsy, uh, but that was not really the case. So this is what we, when we analyzed 
the interviews, that was called hierarchical task analysis. And you see that in the paper as a subheading. Imagine, Pedro, there were 107 task variations overall. There were just alone 34 task variations in, in injecting the dye uh, uh, for this technique. Then after these interviews, the interviews formed the basis for a questionnaire for a survey. And then we had 35 surgeons uh, taking part in the survey. We processed the answers uh, and created consensus. And the first survey then created the basis for the second round of the survey uh, and questionnaire. And consensus was defined as an agreement of 70%. And then we had a consensus and then we validated that. We uh, created videos. And so um, I'm very grateful for some of the uh, research participants who were surgeons uh, submitted videos great videos and very poor videos so that we can make sure that we have a common understanding and the videos then were rated uh, with this um, uh, CAT, with the assessment tool, um, and to, to validate the process. And then, Andreas, one of, one of the things that, uh, that came up, and actually this was a question from one of our uh, one of our. Um, International uh, Journal of Gynecologic Cancer Fellows was, you know, certainly when applying the, the surgical competence tool, um, how does one determine competence? In other words, when you're looking at a surgeon's work uh, to determine that this is like skillful or adequate, um, do you have to master each and every single aspect or is it just a global judgment of the procedure to determine adequacy of performance? Well, obviously, this is a very important question. But um, so we we approach this not so much um, whether we we claim competence or not, but we are basically saying we set the standard. Um, and the CAT specifies the standards. Um, the CAT specifies 18 to 20 steps overall. Um, some of these steps would be very difficult to check. Um, for example, this is about the injection of the dye and so forth. But other standards, for example, 10 of them, we can actually check on a video. And so what we do is we review the videos um, <clears throat> And then we basically say how skillful uh, was were the individual steps performed. Um, and then you can choose, as, as someone who wants to set the standard, you can choose how much variability you allow. You could, for example, say, which we do um, in for, we use the CAT for accreditation of the end of three trial. And we're basically now saying, when we have surgeons being accredited, that we want all surgeons being pretty skillful in all steps uh, that that we can we can video record. But we also know that in real life, um, we're not always be able to to be to demonstrate super skillfulness in all steps every time. We realize that. And so we need to be a little bit lenient sometimes. Uh, for example, in very obese patients, mm -hmm. it may be very difficult 
to do all the steps at perfection, right? That's not realistic. So I guess uh, I don't want to say a surgeon is competent or not. I will want to break it up in various tasks. So we don't give an overall score. We give, um, there are uh, there are various scores, many scores, and you draw a line somewhere where, you know, where you, what what's your minimal standard. And in end of three, we're saying, well, you know, the surgeon meets the standard, our standard for the end of three trial, or um, doesn't quite meet it yet. Yeah. So then that that's a, a, a brings me up to a follow-up question. Um, how did you select the surgeons that were part of this large group of, of experts? Uh, and ultimately, how many surgeons participated and from how many different countries? Yes, yeah, so Pedro, we had uh, 35 surgeons participating from 16 countries. Um, 40% of those had between 10 and 20 years experience. Um, many surgeons we uh, we invited because they published on the topic previously. Um, all participants uh, had to do more than 50 cases a year. Um, and what we call snowball sampling is that when we spoke to some of the surgeons, they said, look, I think you really should to speak to this person, that person, because this person also has a track record in the sentinel node biopsy uh, for endometrial cancer. So that's how we, how we determined that. Okay. And um, now getting on to the, the details, and, and I think that this, again, lots of very important topics. One of the first, and, and of course, obviously a question, that it's it's also relevant for you know in terms of a global application of sentinel lymph node mapping. Um, what should be the ideal tracer when performing sentinel lymph node mapping? And then a second question to that is where should it be injected? What should be the site of injection? Yeah, I mean that's a very fair question because um, um, because there was quite significant variability uh, when we did the interviews um, and we selected the interviews. We wanted to have variability because we wanted to capture differences and variation, but consensus was that the tracer is ICG in the cyanine green, the site of injection is the cervix, uh, and the injection is superficial plus minus deep. So the surgeons felt that superficial injection uh, where you basically raise a blood um, is is mandatory, um, and the deep injection is not mandatory, but uh, but can be can be made. If surgeons wish to inject uh, whatever dye laparoscopically or uh, into the fundus or hysteroscopically, that's fine. Uh, but not it's not fine for the end of three trials. So this is one of the things that we're saying. Well, we. Object, the objective of this project was to define a standard uh, for the end of three trial, um, to define one way, how we all, all surgeons on the trial, how we all do it that way. And if someone wants to inject laparoscopically into the funders, it's not our way. I see. So then obviously then that, that brings me um, to the, the follow-up question because I think that most centers around the world will agree that the cervix is the ideal site of injection, as you mentioned.
But, you know, there, there are some who are concerned about this issue of missing the periodic lymph nodes if one is injecting the cervix. So, and perhaps, more, you know, certainly I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion. The, the hysteroscopic injection, um, because I know that there are some centers that are still advocating for a hysteroscopic injection. Should that be abandoned? <laughs> so, Pedro, my job is really not to play pope and pontificate about whether uh, this should be allowed or should be abandoned. That's not that's not what I do. My job is to standardize the sentinel node biopsy intervention to a degree that um, the end of three trial is comparing one intervention against the other. I, you know, if people want to do one thing, that's uh, that's a matter for their hospital boards to to decide what is appropriate. But uh, my job really is to create a standard uh, and to say maybe, you know, what, what was the consensus uh, and the consensus was that we inject into the cervix uh, and the consensus was built on surgeon opinion but also obviously on the published literature. Yeah, fair enough. Thank you for, for that very uh, uh, honest answer. Um, wanted to then follow up uh, as it pertains to the, the, the consensus from, from leaders in the field. Um, is there a standard for a dilution of a tracer and, uh, and the exact amount that should be injected? Um, so I need to differentiate that a little bit. There was no consensus on the ICG concentration or the timing of injection or whether a uterine manipulator could be used. But most people use 1.5 milligram per mils, mm -hmm. uh, but others use just a lower dose, 0.5 milligram per mil, and that, <clears throat> pardon me, that was deemed appropriate. Um, so uh, there was a consensus on the range of concentration, and there was also a consensus that we should use, we should inject between one and four mils in total. So that that was the consensus. Okay. And now then, another topic of the labeling of the sentinel lymph nodes. Um, you know, certainly there seems to be uh, some controversy as to whether there should be only one or a few sentinel lymph nodes versus multiple sentinel lymph nodes. But certainly in, in some settings, and actually even going back to the database here in our own institution, when, when sentinel lymph node mapping was started, often you would find reports where they had nine sentinel lymph nodes or 12 sentinel lymph nodes. And you say, well, this is really not sentinel lymph node mapping. It's a, it's a lymphonectomy. So how should we categorize the actual sentinel lymph node? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important point. I mean, let's go back a step. The sentinel node concept is that if the sentinel node is negative, all other nodes will be negative, and we trust that. Um, so the value proposition of the sentinel node biopsy is to avoid removing large number of nodes to minimize the risk of adverse events. And so there was consensus. Uh, that the sentinel node is the node closest to the cervix uh, and to the uterus. Ideally, we remove only one node on each side, but there is a possibility to remove also echelon nodes. So those are 
he knows that are second in the line. There was definitely a consensus that not all green or highlighted nodes should be removed. I think that is really uh, important. And, and I should also say, uh, when we come to a trial management meetings in the end of three trial, we will monitor the number of lymph nodes taken in the sentinel lymph node group. Uh, and if that number is unacceptably high, I mean, consistently high, because, for example, all green nodes were removed, then we would seek a conversation with the surgeon, but we would have hoped that we have defined our standard uh, to such a, an extent of clarity that we don't have to have these conversations with surgeons. Excellent. So now getting on to the point of the lymph node has been identified, how do we remove it? Um, how should the lymph nodes be extracted and in fact, actually, not just for the sentinel lymph nodes, but for those cases where there is a completion lymphadenectomy, what should be the standard for removing those lymph nodes? So, there, to come to answer your questions about how should the node uh, extract should be extracted, there was consensus that a node should not be just pulled off for a port. There was consensus, so that would be a prohibited step. If a surgeon, if a surgeon would demonstrate that on the video, that will be, um, that will be, I will be saying, well, that's not our standard. There was consensus that the lymph nodes are extracted through a containment device. Uh, in most cases, that would be uh, an endopatch bag or something similar. Um, but overall, the steps are that, um, and and actually, I would like to refer people to to the visual abstract in the paper because there is a very very nice graph um, that outlines every one of the ten steps that we we will be watching on the video. Uh, it starts, for example, with a bright light inspection. We need to demonstrate the external iliac vessels. We need to demonstrate the internal iliac vessels, the ureter, develop the paravasitis space. We want to demonstrate the obliterated umbilical ligament. Um, we watch the dissection technique uh, so that we preserve the integrity of the lymphatic vessels. We then want to demonstrate uh, the fluorescence of the, of the center node ex vivo, so we just wanted to make sure uh, that the node is actually uh, 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 fluorescent positive. Um, we, we watched the contained node extraction and we're basically saying we want uh, our surgeons to complete uh, the sentinel node biopsy on one side before before they, they go uh, to the other. And those are the 10 steps that uh, we be scoring uh, on each video. Okay. Now, there's a, there's a concept or a terminology known as empty lymph node packet. And it's often, particularly in obese patients, and, and uh, for those who are not familiar with this, is when you have a specimen uh, believed to be uh, lymph nodes or perhaps even including a sentinel lymph node, and then it ends up being all fatty tissue on final pathology. I um, was wondering if this concept was brought up in the, in the consensus discussions or, or what are strategies to avoid the empty lymph node packet? Yeah, Pedro, that's a very good question. Um, 
I would have thought that um, in a in an obese or morbidly obese patient, let's say, in a patient with a body mass index of forty five plus, um, this is just a very difficult procedure um, because you um, you may have anesthetic issues, you may not get the uh, Trendelenburg, the the degree of head down position that you want, uh, and and the surgeon may be under duress in a way. But I would like to think that you can minimize the risk of an empty package if you follow the steps in the process mm-hmm. um, because I trust that the process will get me to where I want to be. Um, the empty package is a KPI. It's an, un, it's, it's an unwanted uh, event. It's an uncommon event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, uh, from reviewing lots of videos and based on my own personal experience, it requires practice uh, to master sentinel node biopsy. Um, if we're under duress, um, we may tend to um, to do shortcuts, um, and uh, and and that leads then to poor outcomes. Um, and I'd be saying to my fellow colleagues who are listening. Um, just follow the process as good as you can, and following the process will minimise the risk that um, you will be uh, you will be ending up with an empty empty package. Yeah, so I think this is a this is a great uh, opportunity and time to bring in this question that was submitted by one of our um, International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer fellows. Um, how should training be modified to assure? that young trainees develop the capacity to appropriately perform sentinel lymph node mapping? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very good question because many of our listeners would ask uh, themselves that question. Um, I mean, to start with, uh, read uh, the CAT paper in the International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer. What I've done is uh, I've printed, um, printed those steps um, um, and again, I refer to the visual abstract. Um, people can print out uh, the, the 10 steps, um, and I basically used a piece of sticky tape and, uh, and stuck it on, on my laparoscopic screen. Uh, I was trying to follow the steps religiously. Uh, I video recorded uh, all procedure, as I do routinely. I video record all my procedures um, and get feedback. Um, but also... I, um, I document all my cases uh, uh, in a database, and, uh, and so I am able to check my own numbers. Um, and I would, I would suggest that, that surgeons start that because, um, because we, need to, we need to increase our accountability as surgeons. So, for example, ask yourself the question, what is your bilaterality rate? Uh, the rate that you identify sentinel lymph nodes bilaterally. What is your empty package rate? How many nodes do you actually remove based on histopathology and so forth? Because the underlying concept is you cannot manage what you don't measure. I mean, let that thing sink in, right? You cannot manage what you don't measure. So you need to measure. I personally use uh, surgicalperformance.com because that's a surgical database that lets me compare, not, not only lets me uh, document all my procedures and get me a database, but it also lets me compare uh, with other people. 
That's fantastic advice for our young trainees and actually for all in general. Um, so yes. obviously having gone through the process of uh, a standardization of the surgical technique brings us then to the next point. What about your thoughts on standardization of the pathology technique? In other words, the ultra staging technique. Were, were there any discussions related to that? Uh, and as you know, I'm not a pathologist, um, but we um, uh, w many units here in Brisbane uh, have used uh, the Memorial Sloan Kettering ultra staging process. Um, it's a process that is very well documented, um, and so when I wrote the trial protocol, uh, I had to review ultra staging approaches. In on the end of three trial, we recommend uh, the memorial ultra staging process. Um, and, however, I realized that other people uh, use maybe something slightly different. I don't think it makes a huge difference. So I'm saying to sites who want to participate and who are keen not to use the memorial uh, algorithm, I'd be keen to understand what is what is the difference in outcomes between the MSK uh, algorithm and the and the other algorithm but um, normally the uh, normally the algorithms achieve pretty much the same thing uh, so we 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 will maybe not be able to standardize the auto staging process hundred percent but widely so in Brisbane for example I approached the different sites, and they were very happy to make the very minor modification to adopt the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, algorithm in ultra staging. Very well. So, this next question comes to us from one of our fellows, uh, Dr. Alex Matumbo, who practices in the Congo in Africa. And he asked the delivery of any surgical skill or competency assessment tool should be possible with the development of a dedicated and trained faculty. Do you envision any active programs for faculty development utilizing a pool of dedicated and committed trainers in different regions of the world, particularly underserved areas? Yeah, I mean that's that's a real that's a real issue. Um, for example, Pedro, we asked our surgeons, and that information is also in the in the paper, how they were trained. Uh, Half of surgeons were self-taught. Uh, 40% of surgeons used research papers to learn the technique. Um, and many, many surgeons used videos or senior colleagues as resources. Only one in five of the participating surgeons was trained by a surgeon outside uh, of the unit. So the role of faculty in this case is really to assist uh, if someone hits a wall. So... What I'm saying is there is a lot that that we can we can teach ourselves doing, um, but then there need to be mentors and there needs to be faculty when someone doesn't doesn't get any further and hits a wall. Mm -hmm. I personally, for for me, that really happened. So I start I started uh, collecting information from all different sources, um, and obviously my surgical friends who were more experienced in the technique shared some resources with me. But then I hit the wall. I just I just had <laughs> a patch where I just couldn't identify 
sent in the notes. Um, and so on my in my database, it, it really looked very poor. And so I was fortunate enough. I was able to, um, you know, when back in the days when we were able to go on a plane uh, before one of the SGL conferences, uh, I joined um, my friend and colleague, uh, Nadim Aparusam and Nare Latar, uh, in New York, and they were able to uh, accommodate me uh, as a guest, and I was able to watch some of the procedures. And I don't know exactly what that what that did to me. I mean, it was obviously a fantastic experience um, to be in the operating room with these guys. Um, and I came home, and um, and simply things were changed. So videos are a great example how we can. Uh, foster our own learning without physically spending weeks and months with someone. Um, I think we need to do some training ourselves and get up and running. And then if there is a situation where someone feels that they need help, well, then they need to reach out to someone, whether it requires um, a physical attendance in a, in a theater uh, or not. Like, I think you would make that you want to individualize that, um, but um, but yeah, maybe maybe one-on-one coaching has a role, um, but maybe it requires also self-initiative and and initiative to to get there. Yeah, definitely. So now, um, Andreas, as the last question, you mentioned the standardization tool um, that you obviously have uh, developed with this. Uh, group of really leaders in the field um, will be used to participate as a requirement in the ENDO-3 trial. So I wanted to just close it by asking you uh, if you can just tell us what is the ENDO-3 trial? And then also, ultimately, do you think that this type of uh, tool will be used in uh, assessment of, uh, of uh, uh, surgeon uh, selection or, or, or quality of the, uh, of the uh, procedure in future trials. Yes, Pedro, we, we are using this tool to establish and maintain surgical quality in the end of three trial. Um, <clears throat> surgeon accreditation hinges on passing uh, passing the CAT um, and maintaining accreditation will also use the CAT as a standard. So us, our surgeons will video record all cases and submit those uh, videos uh, and a random uh, selection of videos will be reviewed and it will be reviewed by the CAT and, and as we discussed before there are certain standards and tick boxes and whatnot so this is this is not an emotional journey this is just a tick box exercise mm-hmm. the standard uh, the standard to arrive at the CAT is is publicized uh, and and even even the, the principal investigator and the co-principal investigator and all investigators of the industry trial will go through the process uh, of accreditation, so there is no exemption for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I could imagine that this is sort of a fairly new approach um, to um, to incorporating surgical quality uh, in surgical trials, um, but in my opinion, it's a very good approach um, because it, it also incorporates the idea of accountability uh, and reproducibility because in surgically uh, clinical trials, we always have the problem uh, that we were assuming 
that we deliver one surgical intervention. Uh, but many of us suspected for many years um, that the intervention varies. And um, my job as DPI of surgical trials is to deliver the standardized intervention to the best of my possibilities. And I would have hoped that maybe this paper uh, in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer will inspire surgeons uh, and fellow colleagues to think about, you know, because them, there may be people out there who also have ideas about other trials and they may wish to think about copying the framework and copying the process and, and apply it to their, to their um, surgery questions and to their surgery methodology. Andreas, I want to thank you for your initiative. Uh, this is, I really consider, a great contribution. Um, and, uh, of course, obviously, I want to thank all of your co-authors as well for their contribution to, to this work. Um, congratulations once again, and thank you for all that you have done and continue to do for the care of women with gynecological cancer. Thank you. Pedro, I would like to thank you for... Uh, for having us um, and giving us the opportunity to discuss uh, this trial here with, uh, with our colleagues and fellow listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Pleasure.